Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with the, with Justin Vaughn, who is the author, along with Jose Villalobos, of Czars in the White House, The Rise of Policy Czars as Presidential Management Tools, published by University of Michigan Press. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Justin. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to speak with Justin Vaughn, who is the author of Czars in the White House, The Rise of Policy Czars as Presidential Management Tools, published by University of Michigan Press. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for um, inviting me to your podcast. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, your book is a, is a subject that I think a lot about. Before we get to it and all that you have to say, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and also your co-author on the book. Sure. So um, I am a I'm an associate professor at Boise State University. Uh, I'm a scholar of the American presidency in general. Um, I look at uh, um, two kind of key dimensions that aren't always related of the American presidency. One is kind of communication and rhetoric. The other is organizations and you know bureaucratic uh, politics. Uh, what I think I really like about this project is how, in a way, it combines those two streams, right? Because it, it's very much so a rhetorical construct about a bureaucratic um, uh, phenomenon. Uh, my colleague that I wrote the book with, Jose Villalobos, is an associate professor at the University of Texas at El Paso. And Jose and I actually went to graduate school together um, at uh, Texas A&M University. We both studied with George Edwards um, and became close friends during that time. Uh, and, and, and did some projects uh, uh, in graduate school and in the years shortly thereafter and uh, in the in the years kind of running up to the, the idea that we had that became this book. Um, and the book is kind of an, uh, an interesting academic story, I think, and how it emerged. We were in Washington, D.C., about to do a research presentation at a, at a small event, and we're sitting, having a cup of coffee, catching up. You know, I had flown in from Ohio. He had come in from, from Texas. And uh, we're just chatting about the news. And this would have been, I think, December of 2008. So, so Obama had just been elected, but he hadn't yet been inaugurated. And uh, Jose says to me, you know, hey, what do you think about this, this czar stuff? And, uh, you know, all the, all the heat that Obama's starting to get during his transition about relying too much on on so-called czars. And I, it hadn't occurred to me yet. And so I said, oh, I don't know. And after we, I went back home, we, I looked around and found some interesting, you know, stuff on the, uh, from the news that Jose had been referencing and, and uh, called him up and said, we ought to write a paper about this. This is kind of interesting. And early on in the, in the, in our, in the, in the process of this project, we kind of believed the argument, right, that, that that was being made against President Obama. Well, you know, we thought there are obvious kind of embellishments and there's a partisan tone here. But, yeah, President Obama probably does have more czars. And 
here are some theoretical reasons why that should probably be the case. And so, um, and so, you know, that first paper was prob was given at a conference sometime in 2009 or 10. And, uh, and then we did some things in, in the intervening years and, and it became a book. Um, but by the time the book was out, we had pretty much totally switched our take on, on this, you know, so-called czar phenomenon. Right. And, and it wasn't necessarily, it, it certainly wasn't for political reasons. It was more because in doing the work and in, in trying to collect data and, and, um, you know, evaluating the, empirics or lack thereof uh in you know being put forward by those who were contending that president obama had a ton of czars um we we realized that the the, the that it was kind of a an empty kel- an empty case right and that uh and that there wasn't quite as much czar politics happening as we had had originally thought uh but in doing in, in coming to that realization we did discover that this is an interesting um, an important uh, phenomenon within the development of the modern presidency. And that while maybe the arguments being made against President Obama weren't accurate, there was a story to be told um, about this institutional evolution. Yeah, and you tell this very interesting story um, uh, sort of about this this um, really you know, 40, I don't know, maybe 50 years of, of uh, uh, White House history. Let's start with a definition. Um, we had Mitch Solenberger on the podcast a couple of years ago with his book on a similar subject. Sure. Do you use the same definition as that book or, or do you approach czars in a, in a definitional way differently th- than that work? Uh, we, um, we, we, there's definitely differences in how, in how we do it. And, um, the work by Solenberger and Roselle, um, is thoughtful and it's, uh, and it's, it's well done, but, uh, they hinge their, we, they're, they're, they're doing much more of a public law perspective and, and, um, uh, are interested in the relationship between the, the development of this phenomenon and the constitution and, and, and whether or not it's constitutionally appropriate. And that kind of drives in, in, in my mind, how they conceptualize ours, right? Czars are, are fundamentally bad thing, um, for them. And they're, and, and in order for that to be the case, they, ha- you know, there, there has to be a, uh, uh, an aspect of the definition that, uh, indicates there's, um, there's some undermining of Congress being done. And so for, for, for Solenberg and Roselle, the fact that a presidential staffer was not confirmed by the Senate is essential to whether or not there is R, right? And so if there's a powerful uh, uh, member of the White House staff, but that person was confirmed by the Senate, they're not a czar for Solenberger or himself. And, that, and, and, and on its own, that, that makes sense, right? Because if you're positing that czars are um, uh, unconstitutional uh, uh, bureaucratic uh, entities, right? Then the fact that they don't have Congress's sanction make, is, is important. But and, and and originally we had kind of thought along the same lines there. But then when I started to realize that when you think about the people who we call czars and who presidents themselves have called czars, they don't actually fit with Solenberger and Rizal's definition. So. Best example that I, I, I usually give is 
if you ask the average American citizen, you know, name a czar in, in the American system of government. And, and if they're able to answer that question, almost always the answer is the drug czar. Um, right. And according to Sullenberger or Zell's definition, the drug czar is not actually a czar, right? Because since 1989, um, when Bill Bennett became the drug czar, they've been confirmed by the United States Senate. And so to me, if the most salient example of a phenomenon doesn't qualify for a definition, then there's a validity problem. Um, similarly, there are times when presidents have, have referred to people as their czars and they don't fit the Sullenberger and Rizal's definition. So if you're, if you're also saying a president thinks of this person as a czar, but our measure doesn't, therefore the president is wrong. Uh, I don't, I, I again think there may be a validity problem, right? And I think it's tied. And so, so all, all the great, great work that they do in that book. I think a lot of it um, can, is, is kind of weakened by this insistence on um, Senate confirmation or the lack thereof as, uh, as being an essential component of, of, of the definition of czar. So if, so if not that, what's the better definition? How do, how do you construct uh, the, the working definition of what is clearly a, a fuzzy subject? Last, that's, I'm glad you said fuzzy. Um, so that, that's the thing. I, I feel like we can make a very strong critique of the way that Sullenberg and Rosell did it, right? But as probably most parent people's parents told them, if you're going to criticize something, you ought to be able to offer something better. And that is where we've struggled. And so what we've kind of come to is um, czar, czar is uh, a rhetorical construct, right? It's a metaphor, right? And um, as, as I've talked about in the past, I say it's, it's, it's exceedingly difficult to find a robust measurement for a metaphor, right? Um, because we, it kind of means the same thing whenever people use the word, but there are such such variations, and and the term itself has become so abused in the press, uh, among pundits, uh, even among kind of political staffers, that um, to settle on a key set of uh, of empirical indicators and say this is a czar, like any configuration that we can think of didn't match the, the rhetorical reality of, uh, of the, uh, of the phenomenon. So, so let's, let's look a little bit more, um, at, at what you do in the book. Um, I, I think your definition and, and much of the book focuses on explicitly on the administrative side of the debate about czars, much less so the political. Mm -hmm. Why is the, the management, the sort of this management lens, the, the best lens to examine czars? Uh, you know, I don't know if it's the best lens uh, to, man to, to, uh, uh, to study this topic. I think it's just the lens that Jose and I are most qualified to use. Um, and so we've, we've done, I've done some other stuff um, independently, you, looking at the rhetoric uh, of czars. Um, but, uh, you know, Jose and I have, have our work together has always been kind of in a public administration, public management, uh, um, setting. And so it was natural for us to take, um, that perspective on staffing and apply it to, uh, or, or use, use kind of the literature and the theoretical arguments in, in that area to come up with our own explanation for why presidents might be doing this. I think there are plenty of other 
other perspectives you can take. Certainly, the perspective by uh, Sullenberger and Rizal, um, the public law perspective, is an is another one in which you can look at the exact same phenomenon and see very different things, right? And they, and they and they're able to pick up on on legal dimensions of the argument that maybe our perspective wouldn't uh, uh, catch. And on the other hand, um, by focusing on that public law. Uh, um, kind of descript, you know, thick description approach. Um, it can lead to making some kind of empirical mistakes that um, our perspective will be less likely to make, right? And then if you're, if you're, you could, someone could very easily approach the topic from a human or a humanistic perspective, right? And and look at the rhetoric surrounding czars that would, you know, see something different than um, what either Jose and I or uh, Sullenberger and Rosal see, and probably miss things that both. Uh, uh, sets of scholars um, catch themselves. So I'm a I'm I am a, I'm r- rather I guess Catholic in my in my appreciation for for methodologies. There are many approaches that I just don't have the skills to um, to utilize myself. But uh, I I can I appreciate the contributions that they make. And so while I think that our approach is um, a valid and useful approach, it's it's not the only one, and I would uh, uh, be uh, loath to say it was the best one. So let's let's um, let's talk about some of the actual the meat of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you compare a series of czars across presidential administrations. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd share with us some of the, you know, the 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 high and the low lights of those comparisons. Who stands out as as an effective czar? And and who who do you sort of come to as as largely ineffective? Okay, that's great. Um, so I think you can look at effective and ineffective ones in, in almost each of the categories that we talked about. And so as you know, we have separate chapters on drug czars and AIDS czars and uh, energy czars and a variety of different czars that President Bush utilized after nine eleven um, and Obama's more kind of policy oriented czars. Uh, and in each one of those, I think we can say, here's a good drug czar. Here's the one that wasn't so good. Here's a good, you know, post 9-11 czar. Here's one that wasn't so good. And so um, let's just kind of talk, use the energy czar example, which is the first one we, we go into in, in, in detail in the book. And um, William Simon, um, who was, yeah, um, I guess, Richard Dixon's second energy czar, um, was, in my mind, probably the most effective you know, greatest czar in presidential history. Uh, and, and there are key reasons for that. The person who preceded him, uh, uh, John Love, who had been governor of Colorado, um, was very ineffective. And there were reasons for that, too. And and so President Nixon had recruited Governor Love to come to Washington, D.C. and uh, to spearhead his administration's response to this energy problem that was developing in the 1970s and uh as they started as the administration was brainstorming ideas uh nixon and love just didn't click right and in part because a lot of Love's suggestions would require tax increases right or would do would, would require steps that um the energy industry or the market would you know frown upon and so uh nixon wanted to uh, solve the problem, but he he didn't. He wanted to also make sure he found a political uh, politically viable solution. 
And so after a while, uh, Nixon grows frustrated with with um, Love's you know preferred approaches to solving this pr- problem, and he recruits somebody um, uh, from a different part of his administration to come over and kind of take Love's job, right? And that's that's Bill Simon. Um, Simon basically becomes the new energy czar. Nixon you know tells Love he can keep his title, but Simon's his new boss, basically, with, to which Love responds that he's not not interested and goes back to Colorado. Uh, and Simon um, has a totally different relationship with Nixon, right? Nixon respects him. He uh, appreciates his, his perspectives. And, um, and Nixon even takes Simon to a cabinet meeting and introduces him and basically makes it clear that uh, Bill Simon ha- has his ear that when, when it comes to energy, what Bill Simon says goes and that President Nixon is going to support him, right? Sending a very clear signal to the other people in this kind of, you know, uh, fr- fragmented uh, uh, bureaucracy is that the, that whatever, what, that when Bill Simon speaks on energy, he's speaking with the voice of the president. And in doing so, Nixon empowers him tremendously. Uh, and so Simon starts to make pretty, you know, radical decisions. Um, some of which, had history played out, may have been terrible decisions, right? Um, um, there was a decision uh, at, towards the end of the energy crisis to uh, to flood the market with uh, available oil, even though a very cold winter was projected. And had the embargo not ended when it did, the United States would have been well short of necessary stocks of, of home, home heating oil. But it, it it did end. And so instead of being you know, the precursor to a, a tragic winter, it was a brilliant move um, that brought the price of oil down. And um, we didn't have to worry about the consequences because by the time we would have run out of oil, the embargo had ended and oil was freely flowing again. Um, so because Simon had this close relationship with the president, because the president um, backed him up um, and, and authorized him to take bold action, uh, he he was able to be a very effective czar, right? If if the if his decisions had gone badly, maybe we'd say something different. But but I think um, when 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 folks say who is kind of the best czar, he's the he's the person that uh, that I think of. Um, another one who who was quite effective um, was Bill Bennett, the first drug czar, and um, George H. W. Bush again embraced Bennett, traveled the country with him early on in 1989. And uh, as they were kind of um, developing and selling the new national drug control strategy, but then just about the time that it it it, it, was, it was time to switch gears from you know development of the policy to implementation of the policy, uh, Bennett kind of abruptly left the administration. And so um, I think he was ex- he was extremely influential and effective in developing what was kind of the the floor plan for um, the American war on drugs for the last few decades. But then when it came to doing it, he, he had, he had left. And so had he stayed, I think we probably would have had another Bill Bennett, I'm sorry, Bill Simon like uh, example on the, uh, on the, the, the worst czars. Um, I tend to think of them not in terms of who did the worst things, right. Or who made the biggest mistakes, but rather who was um, the least effective. And, um, and and so there are, are, are a variety of examples there too. Um, 
the one example that um, more institutional that I think of is uh, the AIDS are position that Bill Clinton created in the 1990s. Um, and you know, late late in the 1992 campaign with George H. W. Bush and Ross Perot, um, Bill Clinton was looking for kind of a wedge issue to uh, drive uh, to, that would create a problem for George H. W. Bush. Right? H. W. had been much more moderate on AIDS than President Reagan had been, even progressive in some ways. Um, but he was also uh, facing a lot of skepticism from his own right wing that he wasn't conservative enough. And so Bill Clinton, at the end of his, towards the end of the campaign, one day just announces he is in favor of creating a new AIDS czar position modeled on the new drug czar position that would basically um, run AIDS policy in the United States in order to kind of quell the epidemic. Um, Bush then has to either choose to agree with this policy or oppose it. Bush opposes it, right, and says, I don't think we need this extra level of bureaucracy. Um, and uh, it ends up being you know, kind of one of those issues where he has to decide either to make his, his right wing happy or the moderate voters that he's fighting with Bill Clinton over uh, happy. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that's, that played a role in um, why Bush lost, but I think it does play a role in why we later saw Bush, by, saw Clinton not invest as much in the AIDS czar uh, position as many would have liked, right? Because I think, I think we can fairly conclude uh, now that history has kind of run its course that the creation of the AIDS czar position was a campaign ploy in 1992, not an actual uh, marker of uh, the president's commitment to solving that particular policy problem. He went through, over the course of his, his eight years in office, he went through three um, different uh, AIDS czars, all of which um, felt the same frustrations and lack of effectiveness that the others did, that um, uh, they were largely used as kind of um, conduits between the uh, gay rights community and the uh, public health community and the White House, but they had no access to the president um, and uh, in some ways just didn't have the background or the experience um, that would be necessary to actually play a strong managerial role um, as a czar. And, and I guess back to your original question about our management approach, and really, I guess, your question about definitions, uh, to us, a czar is a manager. Uh, and in, in this contemporary era where the, where the White House organization is so complex and where there are so many different agencies and offices focusing on the same issues, but in, in different ways with different agendas and even different vocabularies, different uh, kind of authority streams. Um, Often, if you want to make something happen, you need to bring in somebody who is going, whose kind of authority spans all of those offices and that has the kind of cred coming from the Oval Office that makes all these different people operating in different institutional situations pay attention to this person. Um, and so if you look at the AIDS are example and you have someone that really clearly doesn't have a relationship with the president, that doesn't even have access to the president, um, you you pretty much know if that person tells you to do something that the president's not going to have their back right and so you can you're much safer as a bureaucrat or as a decision maker in the white house to ignore them and 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 keep going as opposed to someone like bill simon or even like bill bennett early in the, the george hw bush administration where you ignored them at your peril because the president very much so was supporting what they did 
So let's just finish off here by, by touching on one thing that you, you just mentioned, which is the campaign. Um, now, whether whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, I think most people agree that the President Obama used SARS in some pretty significant ways on some pretty major issues. We're in the, the heat of the uh, debate season, at least the early debate season. Is it a reasonable question to ask a, pres- uh, a candidate for the presidency their view on on czars, uh, whether they would uh, create new czars, whether they would eliminate existing czars? Is this something that should enter into the campaign debate in any way? Well, I guess would it versus should it is obviously a different question, right? Um, I, I think in many ways the, the conversation about czars is this operates in this kind of fictional universe in which there are, you know, dozens of individuals who have been dramatically empowered by the president to do things. Right. And that's, and that's not the case. Right. And so if someone were to ask in a debate, what are you going to do about czars? I mean, I would imagine almost all of the people, even in the democratic party would say, I'm getting rid of them. We're going to respect Congress. Right. Kind of like, um, um, you know, when the question came up for McCain and, and, and Obama in 2008 about, if they're going to use signing statements, right? Because that mm-hmm. the conversation around signing statements has also largely, you know, operated in this fictional realm where the way that pundits and journalists talk about signing statements is nowhere near kind of the reality of, of the situation. Um, and so John McCain can say, I will never, ever use a signing statement, right? And Barack Obama says, I won't use as many as President Bush, but if it's necessary, I will, right? Um and uh, so those, those are just kind of just rhetorical claims, right? That that is exactly you know what the pundit you know community wants to hear. Um, I think what you would be likely to hear is maybe um, something similar to what George W. Bush uh, uh, said. George W. Bush didn't like the words are he. Um, uh, I think if you look at the public papers, I think he used the term one time. And that was in response to a question from a media from from a journalist who was asking him about the AIDS are uh, position and Georgia, he, you know, and basically the question in general was about the Bush administration's commitment to, to fighting AIDS uh, in America and abroad. Um, but it was framed more specifically as, are you going to have an, an AIDS are, are you going to get rid of that position? And, uh, and Clinton, I'm sorry, George W. Bush kind of interrupts the journalist and says, look, are we going to have somebody in my administration that's, that's kind of focused on AIDS? Yes, of course. Is it going to be called a czar? I don't know what they're going to be called. You know, the point is we're going to have somebody in charge of this. And, um, and so I, I, I think that we may, we may or may not hear the word czar in these debates. Um, but we'll certainly, um, hear, uh, questions, uh, about, so you said that this issue is a priority, right? How are you going to uh, ensure that it gets the attention from your administration it needs? And and so and cam, candidates will will promise that there's going to be somebody that is going to spearhead this issue, right? And and that's essentially a czar, right? Uh, somebody who kind of is known throughout the administration for having a connection to the president and being the president's voice on a particular issue. Um, whether that is somebody who's Senate confirmed or not depends on kind of existing legal arrangements, right? Or and whether or not the president does a good job in having that person's back or if for various reasons, their interests um, go elsewhere, that, that also um, uh, can be, can uh, be, you know, uh, variable. And so for example, um, I don't remember now off the top of my head, how many 
how many czars it was that Glenn Beck said Barack Obama had, you know, I don't know, three dozen or so. Um, that number then quickly becomes kind of accepted by everybody in the mainstream media. Uh, but in, in our mind, there were really three great examples of what we could call czars in, uh, in the Obama administration. And they all focus, and, and what was unique about the Obama administration was prior to the Obama administration, people tended to use czars in response to kind of newly salient emergency situations, right? That, um, uh, you know, George W. Bush's SARS all tended to be responses to 9-11 at first and then the kind of various investigations into 9-11 that revealed problems in the government. Um, Richard Nixon's energy czar was a response to an energy crisis. Um, the AIDS czars were uh, a political response, but a response to the growing, growing awareness uh, and empathy for the AIDS crisis, right? Um, Barack Obama kind of flipped the script a little bit and basically said, I have these key policy priorities. I'm going into my administration with point people for each of these areas, right? And, and, and given your own work, I'm sure, you know, you know that uh, when Obama introduced his, his cabinet, he did it in, a, in his administration. He did it in a slightly different way than previous presidents have done it, right? He introduces teams. So this is going to be my ener energy and environment team, right? And on that day, he introduces the secretary, but also the EPA person and, an, and another person's giving me an energy advisor, right? With this idea that, which is actually pretty astute, that um, there are these kind of policy communities that operate in different organizations and offices, but are all focused on the same general topic. And by introducing them all together, it shows that they're going to be, they know each other, that they'll hopefully be able to cooperate more across these dividing bureaucratic lines than, than has previously been the case in history. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, the three people that we identify, um, were, were are, um, Nancy Endeparle, who was, um, the, the president's health care czar, right? And after Tom Daschle's, um, nomination, uh, to be, uh, secretary was derailed, um, Nancy Endeparle kind of became the, uh, the most important person in the White House concerning, uh, health care reform. And President Obama, Absolutely supported her. She had a clear uh, relationship with the president, um, and that became that that was that remains a priority for the, for the administration. There's another person, Carol Browner, um, who um, would have been kind of the energy or env an environmental czar, and um, extremely competent, uh, effective bureaucrat. But when the Obama administration decides they're going all in on healthcare reform, they kind of sacrifice the other issues, right? And so. Um, by going going for healthcare reform, they really kind of kill any chance they got of doing any cooperative um, climate change reform with Congress, and uh, and so all of a sudden, Carol Browner becomes this person who um, manages a portfolio that's taken a back seat in the White House for political reasons, right? And then uh, the third person that we talk about in the book is um, a a, um, a man named Adolfo Carrion, who was um, a politician in New York City. And came to the White House to do something to, to kind of head their uh, efforts on urban policy, which is something that President Obama talked a lot about a lot in 2008 and did a lot with with respect to the spending of the stimulus funds early on in his administration. But then after that, hasn't done a whole lot, hasn't really prioritized urban policy, in part because of, you know, growing awareness of uh, our, our weak budget situation and the lack of political will. Um, and, um, to and, and the inability to kind of go to battle for another big policy issue um, after kind of spending all the capital on healthcare reform. The other interesting thing about that example was 
the person that they had chosen almost immediately had a scandal. And so eventually left that office and went to another office. And once that uh, initials are had kind of left the scene, that's pretty much it for, for that operation. And so, so, so the, so even, you know, Barack Obama, who allegedly is kind of the king of the czars, right? When we look deeply at the, at the different examples, we see a lot of them really aren't coordinating anything, right? Them really aren't managing anything. And the ones who are managing things aren't, not all of them are given the opportunity to be really effective for reasons beyond their control. Um, and leading probably Nancy, Nancy and DeParle to be the one example that, um, you know, maybe if the critics of czars had a point, right, that there's this person not confirmed by the Senate that is wielding tremendous authority, right, and and basically setting pol- or developing policy, negotiating with Congress, um, all the kinds of things that czar critics are afraid of, um, it, it, it was her. Um, Jose and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, right? We don't we don't take the same kind of normative path that um, that Stalinberger and Rizal do, um, that think, oh, that the fact that this this person in the White House is doing all these things without Senate confirmation is terrible. We're more ambivalent, right? That, um, that it's just a reality of the contemporary presidency. And, um, the more interesting political question is our political science question, I guess for us is, are they good at it? Are they, are they successful? Are they given the opportunities, um, to be a, an effective czar or not? The book, uh, czars in the white house, the rise of policy czars as presidential management tools, It's published by University of Michigan Press. Justin, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Youth. It was a lot of fun.